martini and rich Linkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. W-G-A-A-O. Welcome in to Legal Face Off, the first episode of February. Rich Lenkov, Tina Martini, the Legal Eagles are here. My name is Sam Panianovich, and Ben Anderson is across the glass. We'll talk Harvey Weinstein, Tavis Smiley, House Bill 4007 on sex education and the curriculum, plus the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But to kick things off, we welcome Wendy Murphy, professor of sexual violence law at New England Law Boston, also an impact litigator who has worked in state and federal courts around the country. Her website, wendymurphylaw.com. Professor, welcome to the program. So good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, a couple of weeks ago, Harvey Weinstein's rape trial began in New York City. There are many charges that are at issue here, including a number of rape charges as well as uh, predatory sexual assault. We've seen a number of high-profile women who have testified so far in the trial, including actress Annabella Sciorra. Uh, It looks like the prosecution is getting ready to wind down in this case. One thing that has gotten a lot of attention is the fact that Weinstein has shown up for his trial walking with a walker, bent over, and very disheveled looking. This all stands in stark contrast to the six-foot, 300-pound, towering Hollywood titan that we were used to seeing in years past and actually has been the subject of much of the testimony of the various women who have testified against Weinstein. Do you think that this is a conscious decision by him and his trial team? And as a former sex crimes prosecutor, how, how often do we see this type of thing happen? Yeah, good question. Um I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that uh, this is, at least in part, a performance, a theatrical performance on Weinstein's part orchestrated by his attorneys. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have some kind of medical condition, but, uh, you know, perhaps he scheduled a surgery or something to take place on the eve of trial to give him at least a, an argument that it was a legitimate use of, a, of the walker. Um, but in my experience, Uh, I've seen a number of cases in my career where an otherwise healthy person shows up in a wheelchair or a walker um, or with a cane uh, on the day of trial or in front of the judge uh, for a particular hearing uh, just to create the appearance of frailty. And in particular in front of a jury, I think, you know, the, the strategic advantage to the defense is that it creates for them, this psychological image of a man who, number one, couldn't possibly be so violent and aggressive, so it's inconsistent with the sense that the jury will get from the evidence otherwise. But it's also a very powerful visual image of a man who um, feels sympathetic. And, and, you know, even when a jury feels strongly about the credibility of the victim's testimonies, uh, it, there's there's something about a sympathetic appearance uh, on, by a defendant that can sometimes translate into uh, a, a reduction either in either in the charges or in guilt, and you know the jury can calculate, if you will, differently based on the sense that that they feel bad for the guy. We saw this with Michael Jackson. Uh, I think if you remember the trial out in Santa Maria, California, one day he came to court in pajamas and he was kind of shuffling along. And there's no doubt in my mind that that was designed to create the appearance, not necessarily the truthful uh, appearance, but create the appearance that he, even if he's guilty, um, it's because he's 
he has problems and, you know, he's mentally ill, maybe, uh, but not evil, then all of that works to the advantage of perpetrators. Now, having said all that, there is no doubt in my mind that, especially in a sophisticated town like Manhattan, a sophisticated city, I should say, like Manhattan, New York, uh, you are very likely to provoke the opposite reaction among jurors. Yeah, Professor, let me people. let me jump let me jump on on that because I was going to ask you about that. So the the flip side to that strategy is that a jury is going to see right through it. I interestingly, I just in my practice had a bench trial a couple weeks ago, and in, in my brief. It was, a, it was a similar situation in that the plaintiff, in my case, came into court with a cane and a very deliberate limp, and that stood in direct contrast to some actual evidence, including videotape we had of this person. So in my brief to the judge, I pointed out very, very aggressively how I thought this person was lying, and I minced no words. So don't you think a jury... And the jury is not sequestered as far as I know. So presumably, even though they're admonished to not follow media, they're aware of the media's take on this issue. Presumably, the jurors are going to be savvy enough to understand that this is all a show that Harvey Weinstein. I mean, he's a public enough figure that I'm sure a lot of the jurors have seen him before. And this guy was all over Hollywood, right? He was at every award show. um, And the very nature of his presence was very domineering and especially in light of the plaintiff's allegations that he physically overwhelmed them we heard very dramatic testimony that he literally pinned you know women down on a bed and raped them isn't there a real danger for jurors to be disgusted by this um you know legal strategy absolutely and and that's exactly what i was going to say is uh, in a sophisticated um environment where the jurors are coming from, uh, you know, Manhattan, where they, <laughs> they're going to be suspicious anyway. They're just a, a different type of jury pool than you might get somewhere else in the middle of the country. Um, they're going to be suspicious anyway, and they're going to look at this guy, someone who has been in the press when they were allowed to look at the media, you know, assume they're going to they're going to obey the judge and not look at it now, but they're going to remember that even when he was arrested, he was a towering presence and that this is such a different appearance um, that if they feel he's taking it at all, and I have no doubt that at least some of them will wonder about that, that could turn against him, and they could come back with a vengeance and not only not feel sympathetic but feel kind of an extra compulsion to vote guilty simply because they don't like being manipulated. I think there's a real risk of that happening here. The interesting thing about uh, creating this appearance of frailty, I think, also goes to the issue of force. On the rape charge in particular, you know, the element of force has to be established. And uh, one of the arguments the prosecution will make is that the relative size of the parties creates an implication of force, irrespective of what he did physically. I mean, even, you know, even if he weren't pinning them down uh, per se or using violence, you could argue uh, that just because he was so big compared to the victim that his presence alone is, is relevant on the question of force and could be considered by the jury. So I think there is a very sort of basic reason the defense is trying to present him as frail. I just think there's absolutely no hope it's going to work. So I have a quick question just to follow up on something you just said. So we know that we've got most likely a a relatively sophisticated jury here. What happens 
when you're a prosecutor and you're trying a case like this and you've got a defendant who is doing the same type of thing that is happening in this case with, you know, creating the appearance of frailty, how do you as a prosecutor um, deal with this situation if you have concerns about how the jury is going to interpret this and, and potentially rule? How do you uh, effectively combat this type of um, optics um, as a prosecutor if, if you have concerns about um, how the jury is going to rule? Yeah, really good question. And I think it's a tough one for prosecutors because they can't say to the jury, don't believe a bit of this nonsense. He's he's not a frail man, because, as I said, he you know, it's very possible that he scheduled uh, some kind of medical procedure to occur right before the trial for the purpose of legitimizing this appearance and preventing the prosecutor prosecutor from being able to argue that it's a big fraud. Uh, I just don't think his lawyers would be stupid enough to make it entirely fake. I I just don't see that. But you have to be careful in the sense that you don't want to insult your jurors by pounding them over the head with the obvious. And I don't think you need to. I, I think it's possible that prosecutors can simply you know, sort of raise an eyebrow or be very glib about it and in, in that sense, respect the jurors' intelligence and sophistication and let them draw their own conclusions. Because to be, to be very bold about it, to say this is a, this is a fraud, I think, I think, number one, they could get in trouble if, in fact, there is some medical support for it. But also, um, you know, it denies the jurors the ability to go back and form their own opinion. And if the jurors want to go in and think this is a big uh, put-on, uh, let them let them do it. You know, if we all see it, they see it. So I wouldn't make too much of it. You have to be careful to respect jurors, even in a case like this where some things are obvious, uh, and not kind of shame them into into doing the obvious or seeing the obvious. You two probably have seen this with your own cases. Um, you know, sometimes I've had cases with juries where. I've wanted to say things like, don't be stupid. When you go in to deliberate, don't buy his crap. Uh, and you can't do that. You, you have to be careful not to offend the jurors, especially when something is as obvious as this. Let them be the heroes. Let them draw the inferences that you know they're going to draw anyway. Professor, we're out of time, but we want to have you back on. You're one of the foremost experts in the country on women's rights. Uh, your resume is stellar on that issue. and We want you to come back to discuss the state of the Equal Rights Amendment in light of the recent lawsuit filed by several state attorney generals. We've run out of time today, but will you please come back to discuss that issue on a future episode of Legal Faceoff? Absolutely. Would love to. Thanks a lot. She's been dubbed the best talker on TV with her finger on the pulse of women's rights. She is the founder and director of the Victim Advocacy and Research Group. She's all over media. That's Professor Wendy Murphy. Thanks so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you, too. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. You can like Legal Face Off on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and always rate, review after you listen to the show wherever you consume your podcasts. Our next guest, former Assistant Illinois Attorney General and currently a partner in the litigation and employment groups at Frankfurt Kernet, Trisha Legitino. So, Tricia, on Monday, PBS's trial against journalist Tavis Smiley begins in D.C. Superior Court. PBS dropped Smiley's show in 2017 amid sexual misconduct allegations, and its suit alleges that he violated the morals clause in his contract and is seeking to reclaim nearly $2 million that it had paid for the show. What is a morals clause, and why is that an important issue in this case? So morals clauses are critical in the entertainment and advertising industry. Um, And they're critical because the value of entertainment and advertising properties is often highly dependent on the talent that is featured in them. So oftentimes, almost all the time, I should say, talent contracts include these clauses when so that when when or if talent engages in conduct that prevents the producers or the owners of the property from fully exploiting the property, they can then terminate the contract. These morals clauses actually have their origin back in 1921 in connection with the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. And just briefly, in 1921, Fatty Arbuckle was the biggest movie star in the world, and Paramount Pictures signed him to a $3 million deal, which is a lot of money today. Imagine how much it was in 1921. Shortly after they signed him to this deal, he is accused of raping and murdering a young 25-year-old actress in a hotel room in San Francisco, and what was then the trial of the century ensues. And while he was eventually acquitted, his reputation was completely tarnished. Uh, Paramount Pictures could no longer use him in their pictures, but they still had to pay him the $3 million under the contract because they didn't have any sort of morals clause in them. So that's how Hollywood learned its lesson to put these moral clauses into talent contracts going forward. And it's been adopted into the advertising and production industries as well now. So, Trisha, very famously, morals clauses have been enforced in um, sports leagues like the NFL. And the idea is that even if conduct doesn't rise to the level of criminal activity, um, if you have a morals clause in your contract, you basically agreed to you know, abide by the terms of that clause, regardless of whether you've committed any criminal act. The idea is, hey, listen, we have a product, we have a brand, and we get to decide. And you, by you signing the contract, you live by our decision as to what we consider um, a violation of a morals clause. That's right, Rich. And, you know, these are contract provisions. So it's the, the drafting is key, right? Um, so the, the hiring entity or the owner of the uh, product has to make sure that the morals clause encompasses 
everything that they would want. So, for example, in the Smiley case, you know, these are just allegations of sexual conduct. There's been no conviction. There was a, an uh, external investigation done by a law firm. And so the morals clause, I think a big issue in the trial here is going to be whether or not this morals clause applies to simply allegations of right. sexual misconduct. It's or really, does it have to rise to the level of a conviction or a police report? You yeah, know, it's so really interesting. Is key for these. And it's really interesting to your point that it's so much about brand, right? And and, it, and from the owner's perspective, from the owner of the content, in this case PBS, what they're saying is that we don't really care whether you in fact committed any of the allegations. The fact is the allegations themselves are harming our brand, therefore triggering the, mor- the morals clause. It's really an interesting legal concept that you know, is being addressed in a different way in this trial. So in this trial, um, the judge in January ruled that allegations of sexual misconduct before Tavis Smiley's 2015 contract, in other words, past conduct, was not covered by the morals clause. What significance do you attach to that ruling? Well, in this case, in the Smiley case, it's really not that significant because the way that this case set up was Smiley filed a lawsuit against PBS first for three causes of action for breach of contract, two in connection with his 2017 contract, and the third in connection with his 2016 contract. He alleged they failed to pay at the last $100,000 on the 2016 contract. PBS responded by filing a countersuit saying that Smiley breached his 2015, 2016, 2017 contracts, specifically the morals clause in each of those contracts, which is similar, you know, the same language in each of them. And as a result, they're due back uh, in damages $1.9 million in uh, production advancement advances. So, With regard to the judge saying things pre-2015 can't come in, PBS is really covered by smart lawyering in that they've got three years worth of bad conduct, right, that they can essentially get in on their claims, 15, 16, 17, and all they have to do is show the breach in that particular year. They don't need to necessarily pile on, right, and go backwards, but The significance for this ruling is the lesson that drafters of these moral clauses can take away, which is, again, you need to really uh, be mindful of the language that you're putting in your morals clause. If you want it to cover past conduct, it should say something to the effect of talent has not and will not engage in the type of conduct that the owner is attempting to to limit. or prevent with the morals clause. So, Tricia, getting into some more of the details as to the alleged misconduct, a highly publicized 500-page report from a PBS-hired external investigator claims that Smiley's misconduct spans decades and includes inappropriate sexual comments, verbal abuse, and sexual relationships with both subordinates as well as guests. That report had originally been under seal and subsequently went public. Can you explain for our listeners how this happened and what the consequences are of a report like this going public? 
Yeah, it's really, this is this is a mystery how this report went public. Um, I think it's interesting to note, though, that it was Smiley's legal team that filed this report in connection with, uh, it seems as if it was a motion in limine, so a motion getting ready for trial, trying to keep out some of these accusations, but that's a guess on my part because everything is sealed in this case. But Smiley's lawyers did file the report in connection with with some motion that they filed, and it's unclear how it became unsealed. It's what is clear is that it was a mistake that it became unsealed because the uh, court pulled it from the docket about three days after it, it was unsealed. Um, so that obviously shows to me that this was a mistake. Um, but, you know, the damage has been done. The report's all over the Internet. You can read it. At, it's 474 pages of just detail after detail of what the investigator found. So, you know, the significance in this case is, you know, it's going to affect picking a jury in this case, I think, because I'm certain that voir dire questions are going to be, you know, have you seen the report? Have you made any conclusions based on reading that report? Or will you wait to hear the evidence before you make a decision? So I think in in this trial, it's going to make picking a jury that much more difficult. You already have a difficult time picking a jury when you have a public figure as a plaintiff and a cross-defendant. Trisha, it's very interesting because Smiley has pushed back very aggressively, alleging, among other defenses, that he's the victim of racism. We'll see what happens. Trisha Legatino, abandoned Illinois, where you're from. You were a former assistant Illinois attorney general in the criminal prosecutions division. You're now a partner in the litigation employment group at Frankfurt Kernet. Trisha Legatino, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Thank you both. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal Legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. We move along on Legal Face Off here on WGN Radio, WGNRadio.com. Our next guest, Illinois State Representative Maurice West, a Democrat from Rockford, to talk about House Bill 4007, which would require sex education curriculum in grades 6 through 12. Representative, House Bill 4007, which you introduced, would require sex education curriculum in grades 6 to 12 to include material on the legal and social risks of sharing sexually explicit images, messages, and videos. So what was the motivation behind this legislation? Is the old way of teaching kids about sex now obsolete? I wouldn't say that the old way of teaching um, kids about sex is obsolete. Um, um, I think that the as we evolve and technology increases, we need to keep up with um, the world that we live in now. Um, in a study that I researched in 2018, 89% of our teens uh, use smartphones uh, compared to just 41% in 2012. So we're just evolving with the time. Critics of your legislation, like the Illinois Association of School Boards, say you are overreaching and that school codes already mandate instruction on related topics like Internet safety and cyberbullying. How do you respond to that? 
I respond by saying I would love to talk with you about this because I feel that this has nothing to do with um, internet. Not it has more to uh, than just internet safety and cyberbullying. This is more than that. Um, our kids need to know. Uh, our, our youth needs to know the ramifications behind sexting. Um, how this short-term pleasure can really become a long-term consequence, um, as, even if it has nothing to do with bullying. So uh, this needs to be a, a, a topic of discussion within itself. Yeah, it's really timely stuff. Um, in fact, in a second here in our legal grab bag segment, we'll be talking about um, a scandal going on at Lincoln Park High School here in the city involving um, allegations of bullying and cyberbullying and sexting and videos and all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You referenced a study, I think you're referring to the AMA, the Journal of the AMA study in 2018 of uh, over 100,000 teenagers, which found that 15% had sent sexts and 27% had received them. 12% also admitted to sending a sext of someone else without their consent. So, this is clearly going on. I mean, I think even in the two years since that study, the numbers would be much higher. Uh, my daughter's a freshman at Lincoln Park, and, you know, these kids are all over their phones. And we're all naive if we think that they're just innocently sending each other, you know, emojis. This sexting and mm-hmm. sharing of videos and cyberbullying, it's going on nonstop. So my question to you after that rather rambling <laughs> intro <laughs> Is, don't you think it's going to happen anyway? I mean, uh, kids know that sexting is wrong, I think, but aren't don't you think they'll continue to do it anyway, even if they are educated and even if your legislation is signed into law? Uh, very much so. They may they may keep doing it, but at least they're educated on what this can do. Um, because what we haven't talked about is how sexting makes it so much easier for sexual predators and human traffickers to target our children and how you mentioned how there was um, implicit videos going around in a school. Our, our students need to know that this is considered child pornography um, because they're underage photos and that's illegal. And no matter who sends it, it doesn't matter if you're underage yourself, this is still considered child pornography. And so, yeah, it may still go on. Um, but I'm hoping that it will, uh, it will give them a you know the second a second thought before they send it, or they will have a second thought before uh, they try to start um, a viral video of someone. That's State Representative Maurice West. He is serving his first term representing the 67th House District in Rockford, Illinois. Thank you so much for your work on this important subject, and thank you for joining us on Legal Faceoff. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, and um, we'll be talking to you guys soon. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey & Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy 
and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. It is time for the legal grab bag here on Legal Faceoff. Rich and Tina and Sam, Ben Anderson across the glass. Thanks per usual. Justin Kaufman joining us in the studio What's from up? WGN Radio. Welcome. Thank you, buddy. Your uh, maiden voyage on the show. And yeah. Anju Rai Marchand, who is the chief operating officer at High Ground. Welcome to the show. Pull that mic a little bit closer. Like All you right. Are. There is you go. Yeah, well, I think like despite, despite the practice, challenged. you still butcher the name. Did, Did I really? <laughs> it's not Marchand, right? It's Marchand. Marchand. I said Marchand. I heard D. Oh, I heard a definite I, well, I, just, I saw the Boston Bruins play last night. Mm-hmm. Brad Marchand is on the team, so just I like, apologize. I'm going to say this. Just like the Bulls, she has no D in her. Okay. All right. right. Okay. I apologize. Pull that one out of my head. What do you want us to say about you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How much time do we have? That's a long we resume. Should have, we should have prepped for this. Yeah. It's fine. We can stay with that. Or, I mean, I'm now, I do, I'm an entrepreneur and I do tech investing. And you do member. a lot of things. Yeah. Amazing. Just stick with that. Okay. We'll stick with that. Let's keep going. Okay. This is good. All right. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> Good luck. Let's go right. right in the Hall of Fame. So it's that would never happen on my show. Just letting you know. Right to the broadcasting museum, this one. All right, let's start. Let's we'll, I guess we'll begin. We'll begin talking about the uh, coronavirus lawsuit. Yes. Well, this is obviously not a happy topic, but for a number of weeks now, we've been hearing about the pandemic known as the coronavirus coming out of mainland China. And, um, So this story relates to the Pilots Union for American Airlines that last week uh, filed a TRO trying to force American Airlines flights to China to stop um, to protect the pilots and crew uh, for the flights that were China bound. So what's interesting is that right after the TRO was filed, um, it was the day after, actually, Americans suspended all flights to China. Um, and uh, there were a number of other of uh, the airlines that joined as well. Delta suspended flights to China through April 30th and Americans suspended them through March 27th. Um, this has become a very serious issue. I've been hearing from some folks that I know who know folks in Hong Kong and China that actually the numbers that we are hearing about the virus are actually not nearly um, on the scale that uh, and in terms of people who have been infected and so forth, they're not nearly on the scale of what's actually happening over what, there. The Chinese government's not telling the truth. <laughs> Shocking. Here's my, my question about um, how much of it is a legal issue of the unions that don't want to put their people in harm's way and how much it is the airlines that say, you know, we're not making money. At the end of the day, United, American, Delta, all those places, no one wants to get on those flights to begin with. So right. if they're running half flights or quarter flights out, they're, then the economy is telling them to cancel. They're going to look all. They're going to look like they're. Oh, we're protecting our employees, but it's all about money. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, historically, especially in the airline industry, unions and management are incredibly litigious. I mean, I represent a couple of airlines and, you know, I, I work on these cases a lot. And by their nature, these relationships are incredibly fractious. So this is not surprising that the union would file suit. Um, but to your point, it's always about money, right? Yeah. When it's not about the money, it's always about the money. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think there is some concern, obviously, about sending employees in harm's way. On the other hand, that's what they signed up for, right? I mean, the, the, the answer will be um, you can argue that there's all sorts of hotspots around the world that you don't want to go to. Part of your job is to go to them. This might be a little different given that it's a pandemic. Does it set precedent? I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, does it set precedent if they do that? And then there is a hotspot, like you said, another pandemic or another uh, a violent place. Does it set precedent where the union says, "Hey, you did it before, do it again"? Definitely. And the way to really deal with these issues, Justin, is in the collective bargaining agreement that they work out, and that's really the subject of tons of litigation. As I said. So, you know, generally in those documents, situations like this are worked out. You can't um, predict everything, of course, but generally as an airline employee, you know that part of your job will be to go to spots that are dangerous. So it's usually worked out in the the collective bargaining agreement. Andrew, what are your thoughts on this lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I have two thoughts. One is purely from an economic perspective, which is, you know, demand should has dropped. Right. So naturally, there are going to be less flights. And I don't see a whole lot of demand for people going to China right now. The so other than from a lawsuit perspective, I mean, if you're just following the number of flights that need to go to China, it should it should drop. And the second is kind of more uh, an observation is where's it? What about the rest of the crew? Right. So I see that the pilots have this lawsuit. But what about the flight attendants and everyone else? And how are they being represented? Yeah, the economic effects are going to be huge. I mean, some, you know, the traditional saying is when the U.S. has a cold, the rest of the world's economy feels it. Replace that in this situation with with, when China has a cold. I mean, the reverberations of this are going to be just huge. I mean, already there's I think I read 20,000 restaurants have shut down and talking about McDonald's, Starbucks, you know, massive corporations. So. It's well, the number of fatalities effect. attributed to this are already higher than SARS, yeah. even though they were saying just from a theoretical perspective, SARS was more dangerous. We've already seen more fatalities from this, and we're only a few weeks into it. Topic number two involves ring camera and a lawsuit there. I know when we do Facebook Live, I always get pings on your phone. I know you have a ring. Um, talk about this ring camera lawsuit. Yeah, Mississippi family filed a lawsuit last week alleging that ring was aware of similar hacking incidents in the past, failed to remedy it. So I think a lot of us saw the video that went viral pretty quickly of this uh, eight-year-old girl in her room, um, and then a voice comes out and says, you know, I'm Santa Claus, don't you want to be my best friend? The girl screams, leads to a, you know, um, them taking down the ring camera, of course. Well, they have now filed a lawsuit, as I mentioned, saying that Ring should have done more in its authentication process to try to avoid these hacks. Um, Ring has responded that, well, number one, they fixed it. So, you know, that may be seen as evidence that they knew about the problem in the first place. Um, Of course, there's something in the legal world called subsequent remedial measures, which means that if you fix a problem that can't be used against you legally to show that you were aware of it beforehand, the idea is to encourage you know companies to fix problems. Back to the lawsuit, um, they have said that they weren't aware of this, but there is evidence that um, at least five states 
in at least five states, there were similar incidents. So if you guys so were on the jury, what would you, what would you think it, about I, this? I would, I would, if they're aware of it and they didn't do anything about it because it cost money to fix it, then yeah, they're... They're guilty. And right? Ring was famously sold for what a billion dollars to Amazon. Yeah, years ago, so. that's the that's the easiest part of this this story is if they were aware of it. If they weren't, I, I mean, it goes along the lines of any technology. Does it set precedent? Again, I'm not a lawyer, but does it set precedent that any technology get hacked that you go back to where the technology is being served and sue them? Yeah, Andrew, the plaintiff's attorney. The yeah, right. Plaintiff's attorney said that the product was sold and marketed across the country as a security system. And in fact, it's a backdoor to allow people into your home because they're given addresses and access to uh, archived video footage. So obviously this whole area of litigation is new given the technology, but pretty, pretty dangerous, pretty scary. So as a ring owner and as a mother of an eight-year-old and a 13-year-old daughter, I mean, this whole story is terrifying. Um, And I agree with what Justin said is if ring did know about it, they do, in my personal opinion, again, as a mother and as a consumer, I do believe they have a responsibility to actually fix this. Tina, how much can you really monitor this as a company though, right? I mean, this technology, I mean, if Russia could hack the American elections, how can you blame Ring for allowing hackers to hack their system? Well, I think that you have to look at what the what the technology protocols are and the certain basic platforms and what technology exists at the time that these sorts of things get released. Um, to see, you know, did they act within a reasonable parameter in terms of what they ended up selling? But, you know, another point that you mentioned that I think is important here is when you when you tout something or advertise something as a security system, I mean, that gives people who purchase it this sense that they are getting enhanced protection. So when you advertise something as something that's going to protect the public, that's that's a heightened level, I think, of, of precaution that you have to take when you're selling something. I'd say a hundred gazillion dollars goes to the family in Mississippi. Sold. <laughs> well, done. well, and also, I mean, I guess the other other point in this is once, you know, I understand that there are other bad actors that are not, you know, it's not the company that's doing this. But once, you know, you do have some level of an obligation to try to fix it. Sure. But, but yeah. And, and I agree. With that, but by the way, you know, we as we ask frequently on this show about similar lawsuits, what are the damages, right? At the end of the mm-hmm. day, if this lawsuit progresses and you're on the jury and you're the plaintiff and you're trying to prove damages, maybe you prove liability. The next question always is damages. What right. real damage did this girl suffer from this one time incident? She will allege. PTSD and trauma. I would, I would think, well, what's the, the parents actual- probably have more PTSD than the kid. Yeah. I probably had no idea, but I don't know if you're selling. I agree. If you're selling it as a security system mm-hmm. and you can violate that security system and they know that that's happening and they're like, but that's going to hurt our stock price. So let's not tell anybody. Gazillion dollars to the family. Gazillion. Yeah. All right, done. <laughs> I also think there's a lot of similarities to what happened with Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. If you looked at Facebook and all of the kind of the misinformation that's out there, it's a similar issue is, is Facebook responsible or is someone else responsible? Right. And I feel like Facebook gets uh, sued for font size. I'm mean, at the point now where it's like whatever Facebook does, they get sued. Moving on, Chicago Public School Inspector General quit abruptly. I didn't see it coming. Well, yeah, I mean, it's part of our uh, emerging CPS news that's going on all week. Um, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm the father of a Lincoln Park High School daughter. You all know my daughter, Emma. She's a freshman at Lincoln Park, and I've been heavily involved in that story. So before we talk about Schuler, it's all sort of part of the same, what I consider CPS clown show that's going on. Um, just to bring our listeners up to speed as to this very minute, what's going on with Lincoln Park. 
and le- there's legal issues involved too. Um, last Friday, we received a letter saying that the principal and the AP at the school were removed because of some allegations of misconduct, and there's four separate investigations mm-hmm. going on. That is in the wake of the high school varsity basketball coach being fired a few weeks ago. By the way, very successful basketball program. Uh, they were 20-3 and three before they were suspended, 13th ranked in the state. Um, last year, the program placed a player at Texas Tech who you know, was in the national championship. Anyway, they replaced the two principals with two new people. They introduced them at a huge meeting Monday night that was in the community. Hundreds of people, very upset. And they introduced these two new people as ones that will bridge the gap and transparency and honesty. And remember, we were all really upset that we didn't know why they replaced the last two people. Because there was like no communication, no information. Late Friday. So what happens? These two new principals are introduced. One of them is not, not even on the job for 48 hours before she puts her hands on the chin of a student. And guess what? That's caught on videotape. Guess what? We're not told as parents that this was done. We weren't told that she was fired because she put her hands on a student. We were told that she wasn't a good fit for the school. You can't make this shit up, right? In the wake of them not being honest with us about everything that's gone on, Mm. they decide to lie about why this new principal was fired. And, you know, it's just crazy. So we're all sort of in the middle of this. I've been talking to a lot of media about it on behalf of... um, a lot of parents. I'm a former local school council member at Lincoln Park. so, And that's a the, big issue, too, right? The fact that the LSC and the, the community members who were the leaders of the school district, they were not no one all knew. included no one in this. Right. Which mm-hmm. seems... Now, you could trace this all the way back to the Tribune, to the big uh, sex stand, yep. uh, sexual misconduct story in the beginning of 2019. At the time, Mayor Emanuel made a, made a call said, we're going to swing the pendulum. Anything that comes out, people are gone. I mean, that was reaction. They yep. went from way too loose to way too strict in one year. And it seems this is the way CPS usually operates. I had a teacher in the district that we're in who, out of nowhere, the letter came out, said he's not here anymore. And so we had to go find out what was happening. The parents were all confused. There, there was a, it was a sexual misconduct, but everyone was like, didn't believe it. Just like, like, yep. a, like, a, like an Eastern European country, just vanished. Right. The story's vanished. The teacher's gone. Right. Nobody in the community got anything out of it. Right. I agree. I, if, I were, if I were a parent at Lincoln Park High School and I sat through what they threw up on the screen to be transparent about all these vague words that were thrown around, I'd be furious. It's like, you Tell know, what do you story. think? We're idiots. Do you think we're just going to buy this idea that it wasn't a good fit? Like, especially in the wake of what we've seen in Chicago the last few years with Laquan McDonald and videotapes. Just say what happened. Right. We understand there's privacy issues. We don't want to know the names of the students involved or even the administrators or the principals. We get that. We get the legal issues. But tell us that that there was a you know uh, an improper touching. Tell right. us what happened. Right. It's crazy to think that we are taxpayers and paying these people salaries, yet they think we're that dumb that we're going to accept that. And by the way, at the meeting on Monday where they sent CPS officials – we have pictures, parents have pictures of these people on their phones while, you know, parents are pouring their guts out and students are crying about what's going on. These people couldn't even give us the respect to pay attention. So it's it's maddening. So have they said why they're not providing more information? Because, I mean, obviously, the typical under investigation yeah. that yeah. we get from CPS that, you know, privacy is under investigation. Well, if it's, if it's under investigation, doesn't due process mandate that they keep their jobs until that investigation is complete. I get it. We just talked about morals clauses. I get it. There are some exceptional circumstances. 
And if there's an imminent threat to students, we want that person removed. But is there? We don't know. Right. You know, so it's crazy. It yeah. all ties into what, what else is going on. The, the coach at Curry was removed yesterday, the um, basketball coach. And Nick Schuler, who was the investigator, Inspec- he was, yeah, he was the inspector general, general of CPS, that what you know helped with the Tribune unveil a lot of these sexual issues. He's out. He was asked by Lightfoot to give his resignation um, in the wake of people alleging that he was too hard on them. Right. I don't. That that one to me is a political move. Yeah. That's a move that uh, if you run a, a a department at the city of Chicago, the mayor has the right to say, "I don't like the way that you're treating." Sure. The, I don't well, like the way yeah. this is going out. I don't have a problem. I mean, how that plays out. You know what? That can be behind closed doors. The the thing I have a problem with is the fact that they had made such a pendulum swing. That they've decided that the way to do this is we're going to just shut everybody out and we're going to circle the wagons, not because of parents and not because of kids' safety, but because they don't want the Tribune up in their grill uh, writing stories about You've it. You've touched like they did on an excellent ago. point, and that is the underlying point among uh, that that really underlines what happened. Because yes, they don't feel like they have a duty to get buy-in from any of the stakeholders or tell us what's going on because of the political ramifications of the Tribune story. Yeah, it's just fire these people. The principal they fired at Lincoln Park through it has been on the job for six months. And there were years and years of problems that CPS ignored. This guy was doing a great job. Parents love him. I've never seen an outpouring of support among parents, students, and teachers. Yet they fire him under cover of night without telling us why. And it sounds to me, just looking at the what happened, is that he didn't follow the protocol or the processes that have been set up in the last six months. So there are, there are all sorts of processes that you now have to follow if you're a principal and how you do this. It sounds to me that's why they got them whatever, and maybe a little bit of cover-up of not doing exactly what you're supposed to do, and they're setting an example. Yeah. But again, you got to tell the parent, you got there has to be some transparency. And maybe the maybe this is part of, you never know, this might be part of Mayor Lightfoot saying, this is not how we're doing this. Remember, she inherited this. Yeah. Mayor Emanuel did all of this. He's, he changed the system. Now, the other problem I have is you're never going to know what's going to happen. Right. And you're, you're a lawyer. You're, you guys are lawyers. You know the deal. The idea being that at the end you see an investigation, there's going to be an, a report, we're all going to read it and say, oh, this is interesting. That doesn't happen with CPS. They're gone. Well, stay and tuned. Never... Stay tuned. That's not necessarily true because a lot of us are pretty well, upset it, and we only, have some resources. Only because you're pushing back. Yeah. Only because you're pushing right, back. Right, exactly. Well, and the Schuler thing I find interesting because he was actually the subject of an investigation. A law firm investigated these allegations. And so I don't think that this was done lightly. What's interesting is that he was on the job for five years. He had two years left in his term. He was responsible. He and his team were responsible for taking out um, and leading to the resignations of the prior to CPS CEOs. So he did a lot of good work. It's interesting. His team over doubled in, in the last year and a half in terms of size. So um, it's interesting. I mean, he actually came out this morning and said that, yes, he has he is known to be rough on people. So but interesting timing. Now, yeah, it and is very interesting timing. The inspector general, the person who's in charge of blowing the whistle on CPS improprieties is asked to resign right. in the middle of all this. Andre, you live in Lincoln Park. What are your, what are your yeah. thoughts on this? So, I mean, I agree with some of the comments that have been said, right, is that just like Tina said, it is interesting that he came out and made that comment. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, that there's been this investigation independent, right? supposedly, right? So I'd love to know, I, I think, I guess I, my overall theme is this lack of transparency just has been eroding public trust. And you think that we're learning some of those lessons all the way from what's happening in our current overall broader political environment, 
right? All the way to local issues such as Lincoln Park High School. Sam, you obviously cover high school basketball in Illinois. It's a huge deal. A lot of these kids rely on playing in high school to go on to college and otherwise in their lives. One of the allegations made by CPS is that there are recruiting violations. Now, the response from a lot of us in the community are that, listen, the reality is in Chicago, recruiting violations have happened for years. Yep. And, and everyone's looked, you know, the other way. Not to say it's good, but what do you think of pulling the whole season from a team that was doing really well um, as a result of maybe one or two players' misconduct? Shouldn't high school basketball be about the kids? I mean, that's what I keep coming back to. It's about the kids and, the, and bettering these kids and, and building a foundation for them to potentially go to college, whether that's athletically or academically, getting a scholarship. The fact that you know what the school has done is going to hinder what these kids could do. And you mentioned the record. 20 and 3, you know, top 15 in the state. The fact that that all goes away because of a couple bad apples, to me, it, but this is the problem. This is the problem, though. Well, you don't know that. No. Because CPS won't tell you. Right. So tell us maybe why. it Listen. is a bit. Maybe it's a huge exactly. deal. Maybe there was like the whole team was like a, a, a rogue <laughs> basketball Listen, team it, terrorizing the school. Who knows? Right. They're not telling you. If this and, was a Duke lacrosse situation, right. we get it. I would support the suspension of the season. But there's a ton of rumors as to what really happened. And the degree to which players were involved, coaches, we want to know. We don't want to know all the details we want to know. If it really warrants suspension, we're on board. But you got to tell us. And, I mean, at the end of the day, I just hope that our kids are being protected by some of these measures. So while I love basketball and I while you want to, like, you know, support those those records, but if there's something that's bigger that's going on— I mean, I'd want my kid. I'd like to know that my kids are somewhere Agreed. being protected. My Agreed. last point on it is just to 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 give a pro to CPS. In the past, CPS was trans, was not transparent, and they would let everybody slide. That was the problem. They were like they would give the coach the benefit of the doubt, they give the players all, but they weren't transparent about it. Then they got called out by the trip, so they never changed the transparent part. But now they realize they need to protect kids. So I. I that's the, if they were just transparent, I think you as a parent, I think you, everyone who lived in Lincoln Park and went to Lincoln Park mm-hmm. High School would understand, oh, man, that, that's not good. And that's, that's, I think, at the end of the day, what's at stake. Just don't lie, though. Don't lie. Don't, don't tell lie. us it's you know, not a good fit when a, when, a, when a principal is grabbing a kid by the chin. Simple. Right. And one of the saddest sports stories I can remember, Kobe Bryant, of course, perishing, his daughter Gianna, and, and many others on that helicopter that went down outside Los Angeles. A uh, story right here from Law.com that there could be a lawsuit on the way. Yes, there's been a lot of speculation about there likely being a number of lawsuits before this is all over. Um, we're all still reeling from this horribly tragic news about Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna and the seven others on that helicopter ride about 10 days ago. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk already about what went wrong. Um, the NTSB is probably going to take a long time to figure out what exactly happened. But there's been speculation, for example, about the helicopter that was um, that was carrying everybody the, the day of the crash. Uh, it's almost a 30-year-old helicopter. Um, there were bad conditions. Um, there's speculation about whether or not the, the, the pilot of the helicopter should have been flying um, with visual flight rules um, instead of flying with instruments. Uh, so there's been a lot of looking into these these particular issues. There's also been some discussion when the news first broke about whether this was Kobe Bryant's helicopter, um, whether he owned it, because obviously for many years he would uh, use a helicopter to get to games to avoid traffic. 
as it turns out, the aircraft was not owned by Kobe. It was owned by a company called Island Express. Um, they do a lot of um, touring for, for folks. So um, a lot of discussion about this. Um, terrible conditions that morning. Fog. There was a lot of discussion about whether anything could be seen. They were flying low across downtown Los Angeles, then went to Calabasas. And so, I don't know. It's just horribly sad. And I think there's going to be years of this discussion. Yeah, I mean, listen, guys, one truism we know about any tragedy, and we've covered them extensively on this show, is that there will be lawsuits. Uh, You could like that or not like it, but it's a reality of life. And in this case, given the um, parties involved, there's going to be lawsuits. And believe it or not, there will be lawsuits between the families who were on the helicopters and friends with Kobe and Kobe's estate. I mean, at the end of the day, people sue each other all the time when tragedies happen, even members of your family, right? So Kobe um, Bryant has his estate, obviously, has deep pockets. And when the immediate shock of this tragedy wears off, guarantee you, you will see members of the families on those helicopters file suit, not just against the helicopter manufacturer, not just against the pilot, but against Kobe Bryant. And that will maybe seem um, unseemly, Mm. but the reality is they have a claim. Whether they'll succeed before a jury is a different question. But, you know, if it's Kobe Bryant's helicopter and there's evidence, which we now know of, that they were instructed to not take off in this fog, that's going to get to a jury. Um, That's going to be worth a lot of money. And... um, yeah, we'll see some lawsuits. If, what do you guys think of those potential lawsuits? I think when you have such a you know tragic incident, it's natural to try to figure out a way to remediate that somehow, right? And to try to figure out, hold accountable whoever was to blame. So the lawsuits make sense. I mean, especially when you're you know you your daughter, your father, whoever is is killed in a situation that seems could have been avoidable. So the lawsuits, unfortunately. Um, I, I feel like I could relate. Like if I was in that type of scenario, I would I would want to hold someone accountable. Does it just come down to you know? Cause you talk about the manufacturer and you talk about the helicopter, and does it come down to why they flew? Like, does it come down For to sure. Kobe Bryant uh, or someone saying, "Yeah, we can do this," and and others saying, "No"? I mean, is that stuff for sure? Come out? I mean, yeah. human error will be a major factor in this case because the allegations that we've seen is that the pilot disregarded. Um, all of the conditions and decided to take off anyway. Now, he did have training, instrument training, that will be relevant, but for sure, if I was the plaintiff's lawyer, I would allege that the pilot was negligent in taking off in those conditions, number one. Number two, that Kobe is responsible as part of that decision-making process and as the owner of the helicopter. And number three, that the helicopter was defective in some way. Anytime you've got a crash or a product involved, you're going to get an allegation of product's liability mm-hmm. Whether that's a factor in this case, who knows? That's, you know, to be determined by experts. But again, as you know, in lawsuits, you could sue anyone for anything. The degree to which a jury will find that compelling or whether we'll even get to a jury is different. But given the nature of this case, how high profile the defendants are, it's going to be worth something. Now, if I'm Kobe Bryant's estate, I probably settle that fairly quickly and, you know, try to just get rid of it, which will probably be the case. But we will see litigation for sure. Police have weighed in on this uh, assault allegation against the Flyers' ugly mascot. I can say ugly because he is ugly. That big orange thing. <laughs> gritty. Gritty. I gritty know attacks. You, I know you're a fan of Gritty, but uh, police have uh, have weighed in on this issue now. Yeah, I think it was um, one of many Gritty 
uh, assaults gritty over the has, short life gritty of has Gritty. anger issues, apparently. Yeah, for those of you who haven't seen Gritty, he's uh, the newest mascot of the NHL. And as Sam mentioned, maybe the scariest. If you saw Gritty <laughs> coming at you, Definitely you know, the ugliest. You, you probably would be scared. But, um, yeah, a, uh, uh, Gritty has been under investigation uh, for assault. But the latest um, is that he was cleared. He was right? cleared, right. Okay. He was cleared for, for today. <laughs> for now, until the next one. Because well, I think the, the findings were that the incident never happened. Right. The video um, they're showing last night, which is in t- they're just now on Gritty Watch. I mean, there's, there's like a, that's a kicker story for every newscast. He's on probation. Yeah, it was where he was with the kids and the nun, and he right. he blocked the nun, and she went like this, and then he like gyrated at her, and it was like, what is happening? To, what is going on? <laughs> so it may be less about, you're right, maybe less about actual criminal charges and more about uh, behavior and uh, especially you know, with lightness. a nun, like who yeah. gyrates at a nun? <laughs> and at the end of the day, the way I think it's an interesting story because at the end of the day, isn't the Philadelphia Flyers on the hook? I mean, does that happen at a certain point where, like, at the, at the oh, if, for sure, if he's on a deal that he's going to the kid's school right. and he does something that might be unseemly, doesn't that go back to the Flyers? It's not really even exactly. about the and then to the point we just talked about. I mean, who has deep pockets? Anytime you talk about any lawsuit, every, every plaintiff will look for the party that is most able to pay. And of course, Gritty is employed. It's not even a question here because Gritty's employed by the Flyers. So as their employee, the their agent, the exactly, the, the Flyers are going to get sued. Um, but we see these. You know, uh, mascot um, lawsuits all the time and criminal really? complaints. Really? All <laughs> way too I think often. That's, I think it's when right. mascots attack. Oh man, they're so humiliating. But listen, when isn't there an issue of damage. assumption of risk here when you go to a game? And what? That you're going to be assaulted by a mascot? By gritty. I mean, it's gritty for Christ's sake. What do you expect? I think I'm the only one who's going to defend gritty here. <laughs> But in this, you're on the gritty. You're on Team I'm, Gritty. I don't. And the thing is, I don't actually. I, gritty and I are not friends, right? For the record. <laughs> but in this particular case, just to stick with this case, I mean, Gritty. This there's no the parent right of this child says that Gritty actually turned around and punched his child. Yeah. And how do you come up with that story? One, ma- one mascot's punches another mascot's, you know, yeah. high five. Right? Let's <laughs> get over it. It's gritty. Sam, what's the worst, most egregious behavior you've seen by a mascot in your years of covering Chicago sports? Oh, Chicago sports? Well, there are or across many, the country. I mean, Clark, okay, the, Clark the Cub doesn't wear pants. Who's the most obnoxious mascot Clark in all of sports? Clark? Clark the Cub. He's well, pantsless. in Chicago, Clark the Cub is pretty bad. Yeah. Pantsless. You advocate pans for mascots. Do you count Ronnie Woo Woo as a mascot? He's annoying, too. <laughs> I don't know. You've I, never been assaulted or punched by a no, mascot? No, I've never been assaulted by a mascot. Okay. It doesn't happen as much as you believe. Yeah. I wonder, I, 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 to bring it seriously, aren't they, aren't they trained, don't touch the people who are in the arena? Don't You'd touch think, they would, You'd think they would be. You right? thought everyone got that memo. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Benny the Bull, they're like, don't put anybody in a headlock. Like, the San Diego chicken stuff's got to go, man. Like, now pantomime it. Like, can't be easy sweating in that costume, though, for hours and hours. You're going to just explode at some point and go off. So, I have seen I'm on Team Gritty. You go to a lot of Bulls games. You go to a lot of Bulls games with Benny the Bull when he pours the uh, popcorn. That's the best, my favorite part. There are some people that get upset about that, though. It's just popcorn. popcorn. I don't want popcorn on my head. But to the assumption of the risk point, if you're going to the Bulls game, you're now on notice that Benny is 
going to pour popcorn all over your head. Deal with it. Last topic. New York Post <laughs> has put out a list of the celebrities that have been arrested the most. I would have never guessed. All right, well, you guys might have cheated because we sent you the story in advance. But who would you think? Well, Sam, who would you think? Because presumably you never read what we send in I advance thought, anyway. I Just thought. rambling in out of bed to the show. But who would you think would be the most arrested celebrity? Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen. That's uh, what I, would say. I, I thought the article was a typo. I went back. I'm like, no, I think they mean Charlie Sheen. Charlie and Sheen, then, Justin. I would you say Cat Williams. Cat Williams. Ooh. That's Cat with a K. Uh, what would you think before you read the article, uh, Tina? I, I would have said Charlie Sheen. Well, it's interesting because it is a member of the Sheen clan, although he took his name from his father, who changed his name from Estevez. But it's his father, Martin Sheen, who over the years has been famous for being oh, right. a rabble rouser and a. No, it's it's all about uh, disobedience. Absolutely, yes. right, so, right. Uh, civil disobedience. Martin Sheen is the number one arrested. That's who not else fair. Is on the list, that's not know? fair. That's not that's not really being arrested. What other favorites are on your list of arrested celebrities? We love um, on this show mugshots, celebrity mugshots. Yeah. There's been some great ones, but um, Courtney Love. Let's not forget Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda, mm. another civil disobedience. How about Lindsay Lohan? Lindsay Lohan. Lilo. Lilo. Yeah, that's a diff- uh, that's a different kind of disobedience, that's right? <laughs> Some other ones not- who have multiple uh, arrests are ASAP Rocky. Yeah, right. Who's been in the news recently? Conor McGregor, who's been arrested several times, and uh, we've got uh, Pete Doherty, an English musician, but Martin Sheen, president. Yeah. No Cat Williams, huh? No Cat Williams doesn't make the list. I like how the gambling website is collecting this information. <laughs> right. I don't get it. Right. <laughs> All right. Favorite, uh, we got to go with favorite Martin Sheen uh, movie or TV show. Sam? West Wing. Come West on. Wing. That's easy. That's the easiest one. Yeah. You're such a I young do. one. That's what I do. Anyone else? <laughs> Apocalypse I'm, Now. Oh, you oh, took yeah. mine. That was going to be mine too. But he's oh, in, he's in a couple he's of a, he's in some weird comedies where he shows up. Uh, that's like, right. So I, but I can't think off the top. What he's it. great, and uh, he's got a little cameo in Wall Street where he plays Charlie Sheen's father, and it's a great uh, Martin Sheen yell. Martin Sheen is one of the great yellers in movie history. Like him and Pacino go head to head always <laughs> on that crown. But Martin Sheen starts his scene in Wall Street sort of slow, and then he just moves up zero to sixty to this great yell. But. Uh, Aren't you any any Martin yeah, Sheen? No, How about Charlie Sheen movies. Favorite Charlie Sheen oh, or even Fer- Emilio Estevez? Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Ferris Bueller. There you go. Oh yeah. Runner up yeah. in the great uh, yeah drugs. <laughs> exactly. No. I'm a, I go with with uh, West Wing. West Wing. I, I wish they would do a remake and bring it back. Yeah, there's Aaron actually, Sorkin they've, they've at his talk, best. They've talked yeah. about rebooting that. Right. I mean, yeah. well, there's so many remakes happening right now. They'll right? mess it. They'll mess it up. If they, if they go back to West Wing, they'll mess it up. Yeah. Well, it's like redoing L.A. Law, you know? Yeah. I mean, you just can't. Right. It definitely captured a moment there in, in, in history when uh, politics were a little different than they are today. Yeah. Absolutely. People were a little more romantic about things back then. I don't I, know if I it was the Trump era. I just want to know who's going to play Stephen Miller. <laughs> if they're going to do a new West Wing, it's got to be Stephen Miller. Right. There's got to be all the, all the Trump cabinet members. That's be, right. Actually, it'd be a good show. Yeah. I'd watch it. Charlie Sheen. Sheen? Wild Thing. Ricky Vaughn. Yeah. yeah. Major League, come on. Yeah. Major League, awesome uh, in Major League. Yeah, yeah. Major League he put two. the horned rims on. Well, yeah. I think one was, but two he sold out in two. Right. <laughs> when he started naming his pitches. Ricky Vaughn. Yeah, he was great. Willie Mays Hayes. Willie Mays Hayes. Right. Yep. <laughs> Anju, Justin, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. For Rich and Thanks Tina for and Sam and Ben. We'll talk to you in two weeks on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up. 
with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...